Everybody knows things are bad. Oh, I'd give anything to get out of wars altogether. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. But which is the way back to Kansas? All you of Earth are idiots. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. It's getting to be goddamn ridiculous. You're listening to P.T. Pop on A Mind Revolution. Leading you out of the rabbit hole, one grain of truth at a time. I'm out on the road, up on the roof, looking for something, but there's no proof that anyone's ever been here at all. Hey there, everybody, it's PT Pop. With all four lobes of my brain securely bound behind my back. And thanks for tuning in to A Mind Revolution, where I attempt to lead you out of the rabbit hole, one grain of truth at a time. Today is March 21st. March 21st? It's March 21st. (laughs) It's March 21st, 2020, 2020. And uh, I thank you, all of you, the deepest parts of my heart for tuning in and listening to my podcast. For those of you that aren't bots, and I know you're out there, those bots are crazy. They'll listen to everything you do. And uh, today's going to be a fun show. Fun, an interesting show. I don't know about fun, but it's going to be interesting. I'm going to discuss a book that I recently finished, a book called Chaos. Charles Manson, the CIA, and the secret history of the 60s. It's written by Tom O'Neill, and I like it. It's a good book, great book, riveting book. Before I get to that, let me do some shameless self-promotion. Um, check out my YouTube channel. I have a YouTube channel, two, YouTube, two YouTube channels. One's youtube.com forward slash ptpop. And on that channel, I basically, it's kind of a channel about nothing where I discuss a variety of topics, but predominantly I discuss the atrocities of working in a call center on my call center survivor series. I also have another channel called Skating Bear Studios where I do electronic product reviews, music videos, how-to videos, things like that. So check those out. I'm also a voiceover artist. And if you need voiceover work for your advertisements, movies, radio, internet, promotions, I do it all. Go to gigsalad.com forward slash Tompkins photo Chandler one. That's C-H-A-N-D-L-E-R one. And uh, contact me if you need some voiceover work done there. I do it all, baby. Um, I also am an author of books of fiction. And I've got uh, three books I've released. I actually have four. But uh, the three books, the one that I'm the most happy with me, I've had the best return on is a book I wrote called Breathe, John Lennon Conspiracy to Murder and this book is roughly not roughly, it's it's based on my thought, what if all the rock stars that you think are alive that are supposed to be dead, are really dead like what if Jim Morrison and Elvis really bit the dust and they're dead and all these rumors are just phony baloney and what if John Lennon, the one rock star that everybody thought is really dead because he got shot in front of a couple of people, allegedly. What if he's really alive and living his life off in some tropical island or something like that? So there you have it. I also am a musician, so if you like any of my music, the song you just heard in the background was called Nick of Time. That's an original song. And it's a, it's a song I wrote, kind of trying to be, it's like my best Bob Dylan impersonation, but if you want to buy any of my music, you can go to Amazon. I've got a brand new song on Amazon that I just released about a year ago called South by Southwest. It's not brand new. It's a year old. But you go to South by Southwest, search for Pete, Pete Tompkins, or South by Southwest by Pete Tompkins. You can hear my song there. As you've gained, for those of you to listen to me, I'm trying to, to educate the individual masses out there about the rabbit hole they're living in and how to get out of the rabbit hole. For those of you that have been blue-pilled too long and you're starting to wake up, and you're like, oh my God, this, this world that we live in, it's, it's all a lie. It's all, it's all concocted and orchestrated. Our whole lives are orchestrated in, in such a way that you know they want us to think a certain way, they want us to act a certain way, and I want out. 
I don't want to out, you know, you don't want to hurt yourself. You don't want to do anything like that, but you want out of this crazy world and you want to try a new life and find out who you're really supposed to be. And right now, everybody's in the middle of this COVID-19 virus. We're all horrified. It's like a zombie apocalypse. It's the COVID-19 zombie apocalypse. And everybody's on, you know, lockdown across the country. 75 million Americans are sequestered to their homes, hunkering, hankering down in their bunkers with their shotguns and their AR-15s or AR-15s and their beer and their cigarettes and their MREs. And they're waiting for the masses to come smashing into their homes. And I know I know there's a lot of you that believe that Jesus is going to come strolling down Center Street. You know, right down Center Street of your town to announce the Armageddon is here. You know, that Armageddon has arrived. But unfortunately, all we have right now is the state-controlled media selling you lies so they can scare the shit out of you. That's it. There ain't no Jesus going to come from the sky. Unfortunately, right now, there's not. I don't believe so. All I can do is try to educate you so that you know the magician's secrets. So I can expose the great and mighty Oz for the fraud that he is. So each and every one of you can live the life that you were meant to live. If I can do that, I can get people to open their minds and open their eyes to see they've been tricked, they've been hoodwinked, they've been hornswoggled then I've succeeded. And it's important that you are who you were meant to be, not who they want you to be. Because you're programmed and you're conditioned through psychological behavior modification techniques from the day you plop out from in between your mama's legs. You've been living in a world of illusion. You've been driven by fear. A world of illusion is created by nefarious groups who want to keep you on the hamster wheel. They want you chasing after ghosts. They want you chasing after carrots dangling only inches from your grasp. And they're sucking every dollar out of your pockets. They want you passive. They want you submissive until it comes to fighting their wars. They want to keep you submissive until they tell you to go fight. Until they tell you to pick up your rifle and go shoot those people over there who are different than you over here. They keep you mesmerized with sex, religion, and TV, internet, and fear. Fear keeps them rich. Fear keeps you poor and yearning for more and more and more. Think about it. Think of all the things that are obsessing your thoughts, the things you buy and you purchase that you absolutely don't need. You don't know why you want them, but you have to go get them. Cars and clothes and shoes and you know, food, you know, you don't know why, but you can't stop eating certain types of food. I mean, like, oh my God, you know, people are so addicted. Look, look how fat people are. They just can't stop eating. Do you think that's just by accident? Are we really that like addictive people that we just sit around and stuff food in our throats? I know I'm overweight. And speaking of, of addiction and obsession, what's up with all the, all of you hoarding, hoarding toilet paper? What, what's that all about? You know, it's really crazy. It's it's getting to be goddamn ridiculous. Yeah, isn't it? So I have an idea. If you want to support my channel, if you want to make this channel better than it is, I'm asking you to go to my Patreon channel, Patreon, which is patreon.com skating bear studios forward slash skating bear studios. That's patreon.com forward slash skating bear studios. And if you want to support this channel, make a $10,000 donation to my Patreon channel. That's $10,000. And I will gladly send you a roll of Scott toilet paper. That's one roll with 1,000 sheets per roll. If you make a $40,000 donation, I'll send you the entire four-pack. And of course, I'll make a deal with you. Two sheets for $20. You send me $20, I'll send you two sheets of Scott's toilet paper. You can't pass this out, people. I know you need the toilet paper, man. I need the toilet paper, man. I really need to wipe my ass, man. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I, I got to get the toilet paper, man. Oh, my God. You know, I know you're out there all jonesing for your toilet paper. I'm jonesing for my toilet paper, man. Oh. I don't know what the toilet paper is all about. I, this happened in 1973. Every time there's a crisis in the country, everybody grabs for the, you know, runs for the toilet paper. Toilet paper. 
It's, it's getting to be crazy. What if they teach you to talk like this and some Panama City sailor want a hump hump bar? Sell crazy someplace else. We're all stocked up here. Thanks, Jack. I'm, I'm all stocked up with crazy. But I, I think most people in this country are losing their marbles. But I digress. So, tonight's topic. Tonight's episode... The man with the wooden leg. <laughs> I think that's from Streets of San Francisco, the old TV show with Michael Douglas and Carl Malden. Um, tonight's episode, I'm going to discuss a book I just finished reading, a, a phenomenal book that I ask each, each and every one of you to purchase. It is a book called Chaos. Charles Manson, the CIA, and the secret history of the 60s. It's written by Tom O'Neill. This is a riveting book. It is it is a riveting book. And author Tom O'Neill, let me say this about the author of the book, Tom O'Neill. He is an award-winning investigative journalist and entertainment reporter whose work has appeared in national publications such as Us, Premier, New York, The Village Voice, and Details. He graduated he graduated with a Bachelor in Fine Arts from New York University Tisch School of the Arts and currently resides in Venice, California. So he's a very, he's a legitimate source and he really works ass off on this. And if you think about the work that this man put into investigating these murders and the, the buffoon police and people that worked on this investigation for four months before they even came close to catching Manson. It's just mind blowing. If you if you if you knew anything about the amount of work that this man put into it, he just he spent twenty years investigating these murders and investigating Charles Manson. He even had a brief interview with Charles Manson in prison. He interviewed uh, Vincent Bugliosi several times. He talked to people that were in the CIA. He, he, he this book is really in depth, and I guarantee you, if you read this book, it's going to give you a whole new point of view on these Manson murders. Because what was sold to us in the Helter Skelter book written, written by Vincent Bugliosi and the TV show that they, they put on TV is all Hollywood fluff. It's all showbiz. But you have to read the book to understand that what you've been sold and what you've been told in society about this man and his clan by Charles Manson and all the people that uh, were allegedly under his spell is more more than likely a falsification, a story that was spun to make him the fall guy. They made him basically the fall guy for this whole thing. And they, they locked him up for life because he said he was so powerful. You know, he was so influential. He was so charismatic that there's no way you could ever let him out of prison because he, he orchestrated these murders, man. He got these people to go in the hills of Los Angeles, the Hollywood Hills, and murder them and cut out their babies and hang them by ropes and stuff. It was all his idea. And he, he had this power over people. The overall thing I'm trying to say here is that the image that is portrayed of Charles Manson is not exactly what happened. And in this book, if you read this book, it's going to lead you down paths, make you go, wait a minute. Maybe he wasn't really behind this. Maybe the CIA and the FBI was. And author Tom O'Neill, in 1999... He was assigned to write an article covering the 30th anniversary of Helter Skelter, which is also known as the Manson murders or the Tate-LaBianca murders that Charles Manson allegedly masterminded. And he was writing, the, uh, this Mr. O'Neill was writing the article for a magazine called Premier Magazine. And he started off to write this short article commemorating the anniversary of the Tate-LaBianca Charles Manson murders or Helter Skelter and it was supposed to be published for the 30th anniversary. But what started out as a short assignment turned into tw a 20-year scavenger hunt down the rabbit hole trying to piece together what really happened before, during, and after the Tate-LaBianca murders. It was crazy. I mean, this, this guy put in a shitload of work on this. Just a boatload of work. Um, this book... Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the History of the Sixties was published this last summer, the summer of twenty nineteen. I just finished reading this book and I I, I gotta tell you I was riveted. You know 
when you read this book, if you get this book, if nothing else, what this book did for me, and it'll probably do for you, is it really make you question our reality that we live in or the reality that we think we live in. And that's what it did for me. It made me sit back and go, wow. Maybe there was really something more to these Charles Manson, Tate LaBianca murders than the media told us or that, quote, they, unquote, told us. So I'm, I'm not really certain how much detail to go into when it comes to the murders that Charles Manson's family allegedly committed. Because I know a lot of the, the details have been gone over and over and over again worldwide. But for those of you who may be listening who are not real familiar, on the night of August 9th, 1969, four members of the Manson family, or quote, clan, unquote, invaded a rented home, or the rented home of Sharon Tate. This is this is from Wikipedia, and I'm summarizing what happened. But they invaded the rented home of Sharon Tate, who was a very famous movie actress at the time. Kind of like the equivalent of an Angelina Jolie or a Julia Roberts of our day. So they invaded her home, and she was married to Roman Polanski. Polanski wasn't present at the time. Um, Roman Polanski wasn't. Roman Polanski was a real famous movie director. I'm not certain what his status is today. I know he had some issues with a lot of legal battles with alleged sexual, I think, interaction with underage girls in later years, or at that time, I'm not positive. Um, but at the time of the murders, Polanski was not present. He was working on a film in Europe. And the address was 10050. I think it's Cielo, C-I-E-L-O, Drive. So either Cielo or Chilo Drive, I'm not certain, in Los Angeles. And they murdered Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, along with three friends who were visiting, and an 18-year-old visitor who was slain as he was leaving the home. So these murders were horrible. These people were stabbed to death. They were slaughtered. So the occupants of the house at the time during the murder were Sharon Tate, as I had stated earlier, who was eight and, a half, eight and a half months pregnant. And he was she was the wife of film director Roman Polanski. Her friend and former lover, Jay Sebring, was there, a noted hairstylist. Polanski's friend and aspiring screenwriter, Wojciech Frykowski, and Frykowski's lover, Abigail Folger, who was the heiress to Folger's coffee fortune and daughter of Peter Folger. And they, you know, basically the murder scene was gruesome. They took blood from the victims and spread it on the wall, writing out words like pig and the word helter skelter was spelled on the wall in in, in the in the individual's blood. So the, the murders were, were very shocking at the time. It was done in an area where people kept their doors open. At the time in Hollywood, you know, Hollywood people weren't usually stalked or attacked like this by random people like this to just attack them. They were all attacked in the summer of 69 and nobody was arrested until like December, like four, four, almost five months after the fact. And it was really weird how they kept saying they couldn't find anybody. They couldn't figure out who had done it, things like that. After they killed Sharon Tate, allegedly Charles Manson took the four murderers plus Leslie Van Houten and Steve Clem Grogan for a drive the following night because he was displeased with the panic and, f and flight of the victims and the previous night's murders, allegedly, because I guess they ran out of the house and they were being stabbed to death in the yard and things like that. And he wanted to take them to another house to show them how to do it. They went to the home of supermarket executive Leno LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary. They're co-owner co of a dress shop located in a section of Los Angeles, next door to the house where Manson and the family members had attended and partied for previous years. And they slaughtered these people in a similar manner. But the whole point is that allegedly this Charles Manson dude had these people that were kind of under his spell. He had all these people and they called, they called, I don't know if the media called it the family or he called it the family, but there were, Manson was like the head. He was like this. Allegedly, he was portrayed in the media as being like this cult leader of the Manson family. And he had these people under his spell and he told them to go kill and they killed. Okay. And the media portrayed him as this crazy-eyed, crazy, weird little guy because he was only five foot six and maybe 120 pounds soaking wet. He was a little tiny guy, and he somehow had all this charisma and this power. And then he put spells 
people under spells and they would go out and they'd kill for him. And he had these beautiful women, fairly attractive women. You know, he had he had Susan Atkins and Linda Kasabian and Patricia Krenwinkel. And he, they were part of the family. They would kill for him with knives and do anything they told him to do. And the me- media portrayed it like once they, once they found this guy and they had him in trial. And they had him in a trial. The, the media just went berserk with it. It was really bizarre how they portrayed him as this insane vicious murderer who had people under their spell and all of this stuff okay atmosphere in the circus like atmosphere that they created about charles manson and it, he had he concocted this thing solely on his own and and his idea was he was trying to create a war between white people and black people and when he when he painted had them paint words and crazy words on the walls like helter skelter and pig he was trying to create, like, make it make people think like the Black Panthers had gone into these people's homes and killed them, because I guess at the time the Panthers would call call the police pigs, and, and I think people in general back then called police officers pigs. But he was trying to allegedly he was trying to keep this whole crazy thing going and try to inspire this like end of the world um, apocalyptic thing between. Um, white people and black people and get the black people to rise up, take over the white people and things like that. What got me initially into this whole thing was, and and I think the reason I find this book interesting and fascinating is because I discovered Charles Manson when I was 10 years old. It was the spring of 1976, and there was a CBS television miniseries airing on, on TV on April 1st and April 2nd of that year. And it was titled Helter Skelter. And it was based off of a book written by the lead prosecutor who worked for the district attorney's office. His name was Vincent Bugliosi. I find this, I found this fascinating because at the time, at the age of 10, I had no idea who Charles Manson was. I'd never heard of Helter Skelter. But I was a huge, and still am a huge, huge fan of the rock group, the Beatles. Now, um, this TV, this miniseries that aired in 1976 starred George DiCenzo who played Vincent Bugliosi, and he played as the Los Angeles attorney, the lead prosecutor against Manson. Steve Railsback played Charles Manson, or, or he was Charles Manson in the series. And even though I was only 10 at the time, I was fascinated with this miniseries because there were references to the Beatles throughout the series and their a 1968 album called The White Album. And on The White Album, there was a couple of songs that Charles Manson felt there were messages being sent to him allegedly this is allegedly what he thought that a song called revolution number nine and helter skelter were telling him to go out and start the apocalypse to start a race war between black people and white people and it got real crazy this is allegedly what he thought now i don't have the transcripts from the trial and all that stuff and i don't what he really thought but that's that's what this show perpetuated now up to this point i had never heard the white album i didn't own a copy of the white album in april of 1976 i'd never heard Revolution number nine, I'd never heard of Helter Skelter, but I was like, wow, I gotta hear these songs, man. I gotta hear these songs, gotta hear these songs that Charlie listened to, man. For those of you that are listening that are not are not familiar with Mr. Charles Manson, uh Charles Manson was born November twelfth, nineteen thirty four, believe it or not, right here in Ohio. He's born in Cincinnati, Ohio, in the in the United States. And this makes me really worried because there's a lot of weird mass murderers and uh cult type people that are born in Ohio, including uh, Jeffrey Dahmer and people like that, or they've had some connection to Ohio. So I honestly believe there's something in the water here in Ohio that's driving people crazy. I think there's too much lead in the water here or something. They just haven't told everybody about it. But anyway, he was born here in Cincinnati, Ohio. He died November 19th, 2017, uh, just under uh, three years ago. He died in a hospital in Bakersfield, California. He was still imprisoned for his involvement with the Tate LaBianca murders in 1969. He died in the hospital in Bakersfield of cardiac arrest resulting from respiratory failure and colon cancer. He was 83 years old. Mr. Manson was an American criminal who had a very long rap sheet. He began, he, he had a really horrible life too. Prior, prior to his rap sheet, he had been abused by classmates in school. Um, he had actually been raped in school by fellow fellow classmates. He, he had a horrible experience with his family. He had been abused 
physically, emotionally, sexually, and, and mentally and emotionally, he was totally just destroyed as a person. He, he formed, in 1967, he formed what became known as the Manson family, or, quote, the family, unquote. As, and they would become known as the, as the family throughout this trial and throughout history. And these murders, the Tate LaBianca murders, um, Manson alleg- allegedly orchestrated these murders so his, quote, family, unquote, would go out and kill for him. And they went in, into the Tate LaBianca um, households and killed nine people. Charles Manson was also a musician. There's a lot of things about Mr. Manson that nobody really talks about or knows about. They just know the Tate LaBianca murders, Helter Skelter. They, they think he was crazy because you see all these interviews with him and Diane Sawyer and people on old TV shows. They're like, Charlie, tell me, um, what do you think of prison? Hey, man, prison's here, it's there, it's everywhere, man. It's in my head. It's in that boat over there, you know? So, you know, and he would come up with these really weird, insane-sounding answers. But as I look at them... Now, years later, after seeing it originally aired when I was younger, I realize it's either a defense mechanism he's using to throw people off or to keep them at arm's length or to keep them off balance. I don't think he was crazy. I think he was a genius. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be, I'm not, I'm not like a Charles Manson fan, but I think he was a brilliant man who had been severely abused and beaten and taken advantage of his whole life. And I think people have overlooked some of his strengths as a person. And I think that's one thing in this country we do is somebody commits an, a crime and they just lock them up and they forget about them. They don't go on in and sit down with them and find out why, how that person went from being a, a little baby to a mass murderer. What happened between point A and point Z to get them to, to commit murder or to orchestrate murders? Nobody ever thinks about that. I'm, I'm sure there's psychiatrists and psychologists that have sat down with a variety of people to try to discover it, but it's not done. But anyway, Charles Manson was also a musician. He had written songs such as Look at Your Game, Girl. Your home is where you're happy. I'll put a link to his album. He's got an album that was released in 1970, right after he um, was imprisoned for the Manson Tate LaBianca murders. I'm sorry, not the Manson murders, the Tate LaBianca murders. His album was called Lie, the Love and Terror Cult. I'll put a link to that in there. His music's not too bad. He had some need ideas. And I guess the thing that I found about Charles Manson is, is I've grown up and from the day of age 10 up until just recently, I always thought he was this crazy man. He was this lunatic that was running around the hills of Southern California with butcher knives and, you know, butchering people and killing people and raping. And ah, he was horrible, you know, but I find out there's this human side to him that none of us want to recognize. And the book doesn't really touch on that, but, but I think there's a whole lot more to him than just what he's been portrayed as. But as I've gotten older, as I've matured, I've become very interested in Mr. Manson, more from a sociological and a psychological standpoint or perspective, uh, more uh, more so than from a criminal perspective. Everyone looks at him as a criminal, a famous, nasty criminal. Uh, When I hear of some of what others consider Manson's psychobabble, you know, I actually hear a logic that most overlook because they think of him as being insane. And if you go to YouTube, somebody's put together a montage uh, titled The Infinite Wisdom of Charles Manson. And I'm going to play some excerpts from this interview where he's a very lucid, he's not psychobabbling. Because originally I was going to try to make this this podcast kind of whimsical and funny and try to make fun of Manson. But I think that's really, it's in poor taste. Granted, I know he's a huge criminal and stuff, but if you can really look at this person for who he was and what he went through as a person, this book might make more sense. Your life make, might make more sense because we all go through stuff that warps our brains. I'm going to play a clip here from an interview, two, just two short clips, to give an idea of, of Charles Manson's logic and see what you think of this. Here, here we go. Do guys belong on a death row or a condemned row if there is such a row? They belong in a place like this? If they're, they've been convicted of murder and killing? Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes so, as a collective society. Even though they have rebelled against that society? Well, uh, who? they weren't born rebelling. They weren't born with uh, uh, the anger and frustration that they have. That- See, and that's a... a- 
beautiful point there. I mean, this is coming from a man that's been portrayed as an evil, horrible person. But what he's saying there is, I, as I've said in other podcasts, you're born with a blank slate in your head, tabula rosa, or as my psychology professor in college who is Hispanic would say, tabula rosa. It means you, you're born with a blank slate. There's nothing up there in your brain box yet. There's no programming. And somebody's going to pour this crap in your head to make you angry, to make you rebel, to make you hate. It's a, You're conditioned to become that way. And that's what he's saying. You know, These people didn't start off that way. They ended up this way because you fuck with their head so bad. It had to be put on them by somebody. Some- it had to be put on, put on them by somebody. Somebody created them. Uh, it's as if your outside world programs people into education and knowledge. The inside unprograms people to wisdom and understanding. Now, I think what he's talking about there on the inside, I think he's, I think he's talking about prison. I've never been in jail or prison, but I think when you go into prison, if you hook up the right groups of people, they teach you to look at the world a different way because prison, prison becomes your world. And I think Charlie has even said that in some of his interviews. He's like, you know, What's your world like here in prison? He's like, you know, my world is everywhere, man. It's, it's here, it's there. It's not just here in these walls. But, you know, prison becomes your world because the outside world goes away. But now... Now, this is a second interview from another interview. I don't know who, who these people are, but this is another another uh, interview. That I have learned what I've learned. I don't think you people want to know what I know. You wouldn't like it. Why? Well, because it's not very nice. Now, listen to the interview where he's doing Socratic questioning, which is a form of questioning that Socrates came up where you just continue to pull answers out of people by asking why, how, why, how, what makes you think that. It's open-ended questions that get the person talking. Well, why? Because the people that you let run your lives aren't very nice. The people that govern you, the people that tell you people what to do, they're not good people. Charlie Manson that you created, that's not me. <laughs> that's only an illusion in your mind. It hasn't got anything to do with me. Now, he's basically saying there the government and the powers to be are evil and that they condition you and they make you into who they want you to be. And the public's perception of Charles Manson is concocted. It's an illusion that was created by the media, an illusion that was created by the prosecution of his trial and the media after he was imprisoned and found guilty of these murders. Um, he's saying they're evil and they're wicked and they, they pour shit into your head to make you and turn you into something. But the perception that we all have of Charlie is manufactured by those entities that control the world. And it's true. I mean, I don't know anything about Charles Manson, the person. Nobody really knows who he really was. We only know what they want us to know about him or what they want us to think he was like. And his logic is infallible. It's very clear. It's concise. It's it's right on spot. He's been portrayed as nothing worse than Satan himself. So, but this book, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s by Tom O'Neill covers a variety of topics. Um, it, can say, it asks who were Manson's real friends in Hollywood and how far would they go to hide their ties with him? Why did law enforcement, including Manson's own parole officer, act on their many chances to stop him? And how did Manson, an illiterate ex-con, turn a group of peaceful hippies into remorseless killers? But there's a variety of things that this goes into and they discuss and his involvement with different factions of the government, how he inadvertently or indirectly was connected with or being controlled by different elements of the government, including the CIA and the FBI. There's a variety of things here, but basically, from a 50,000-foot overview of the book, the book comes out and alleges that the CIA saw Charles Manson as an easy mark and an illiterate, not illiterate, but an undereducated or illiterate ex-con who had been in prison almost his entire life. He was street smart. He was savvy. He had, had charisma. But they used him as a pawn to undermine the hippie peace movement and the love movement in the late 1960s, especially in the Haight-Ashbury district and in Southern California. And the reason the government wanted to do this 
was to create a wedge between the perception of the peace love movement and the public's perception of it. Because I believe up until Helter Skelter and the Tate LaBianca murders, most Americans thought the hippies were just lunatics, just goofy, crazy kids that were smoking dope, wearing bell-bottom jeans and with peace symbols and stuff. They were cool. You know, they were okay. They weren't bothering anybody. But, but when these murders happened, they used Manson as a way to undermine the peaceful perception of the hippies and to ruin it and to destroy it so they could undermine it and get rid of it. The peace movement was considered a threat to the establishment at the time. It was considered a threat to the war movement in Vietnam, to the Nixon administration, to the Johnson administration. The hippie peace movement was a faction in our culture here in the United States that was kind of, it was, wasn't kind of, it was subversive. It went, it went against the grain, and it made a lot of people very uncomfortable because they had a lot of power. They were turning people's minds, young people's minds, away from the government, away from establishment, away of doing things the way they were told to do things. Because in this country, they talk about freedom. But you can only have the freedom if you live by the rules that this government tells you how to live it. you got to live A plus B equals C. If you want to live at A plus B equals Z minus X, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. Your freedoms go away real quick. And that's what the hippies are doing. They're trying to kind of shake things up. Give you some kind of, kind of background of this time in America. There were a variety of things going on in our government that were subversive to the Constitution and civil rights and subversive to the, a whole bunch of freedoms here in this country. And there was something called COINTELPRO and something called CHAOS and another thing called MKULTRA. And I'm not going to go into these a lot of detail about these things, but basically COINTELPRO was a series of covert and oftentimes illegal projects conducted by the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation, or the FBI, aimed at surveilling, infiltrating, discrediting, and disrupting American political organizations. And then there was chaos. Chaos, um, CIA Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, Richard Helms, authorized an illegal domestic surveillance program code codenamed Chaos. And Chaos was a CIA domestic espionage project targeted at the American people from 1967 until 1974. It was established by President Lyndon B. Johnson and expanded under President Richard Nixon, whose and its mission was to uncover possible foreign influence on domestic race, anti-war, and other protest movements. Uh, allegedly, uh, I say allegedly, um uncover possible foreign influences. I, I don't think they're worried about communists. I think they're worried about internally, uh, people doing something internally to go against the war because that's what was happening in the country. The people here in this country didn't want the Vietnam War. And then there was um, MK Ultra, which was a sub-project. It was called Sub-Project 43. And it was over, it was granted and run by the CIA. MK Ultra also called the CIA, the CIA Mind Control Program, is the code name given to a program experimenting on human subjects that were designed and undertaken by the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. And many of these projects of mind control were illegal. And these experiments on humans were intended to identify and develop drugs and procedures to be used in interrogations in order to weaken the individual and conf and confess, force confess, or force confessions through mind control. All this was going on at the same time Charles Manson was in the prison system and the hippie movement was going on, the 60s were exploding and, and the youth movement was happening and the youth didn't want to fight in the war, the youth didn't want to be part of the establishment. It was a very controversial time in America. It was like an upheaval. It was like just crazy times. So you've got all these things going on. You've got CIA, CIA mind control uh, programs. And before Manson did these murders, he had a parole officer whose name was Roger Smith. And at the time, Charles Manson, who hadn't committed these murders yet with his family, had a parole officer named Roger Smith. And Roger Smith would meet with Manson at this Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic instead of meeting with him in his office in downtown San Francisco. So a parole officer made sure that the parolee 
is meeting the conditions of his parole. And one of the conditions is you're supposed to stay in a confined area. You can't leave a certain area. You're, you're supposed to meet with him in designated places that are agreed upon by, I think, the, the district attorney's office and things like that. But this, this Roger Smith said, screw it, just meet with me at the Haight-Ashbury Freak Medical Clinic. There was a man working at the very same clinic in the Haight-Ashbury District at the same time that Manson was meeting his parole officer there. At the very same time Manson was meeting his parole officer there. And the other man that worked at this exact same clinic at the exact same time was a psychiatrist named Louis Jollyan West, also known as Jolly West. And he is an American psychiatrist whose work focused particularly on cases where subjects were taken to the limits of human experience by using LSD on them during, quote, psychotherapy sessions, unquote. He, he did a lot of studies with POWs from the, uh, the Korean War, but he's best known for his participation in Project MKUltra. Now, West did his psychiatry residency at Cornell University, which is an MKUltra institution in sight of the Human Ecology Fund. He later became a subcontractor for MKUltra Project, or Subproject 43, which was paid for and subsidized by the CIA while he was chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oklahoma. And he did psychophysiological studies of hypnosis and suggestibility and also experimented on people using LSD, psychotropic drugs, to break people down, erase their minds, build them out, back up through behavior modification and brainwashing. Now I bring this up, and I think you see where I'm headed. We got Charles Manson at this clinic with his parole officer, and at the same time he's there with Jolly West, who's conducting experiments on people. And so Charles Manson would show up with his women, with his harem of women. And for some reason, he'd always show up at this clinic to meet with his parole officer. And there's, there's, is this a coincidence or is this just what they did because it was convenient? But if Manson was there in the Haight-Ashbury area, he would have been in violation of his parole. His parole officer knew it and he would have gone back to prison. But for some reason, he decided to meet with him there. I think you see where I'm going with this. The, the, the whole CIA MK Ultra thing, they did uh, psychophysiological studies of hypnosis and suggestibility, and they, they interlaced these studies. Where they used drugs and hypnosis to conduct behavior control experiments on Americans without their knowledge. And one thing they used was LSD. So this Jolly West accepts a position at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic to do experiments, allegedly. And in the same office, Roger Smith, the parole officer of Manson, is having Manson come down to this clinic to meet with him there for some reason. <laughs> I mean, there's just too many coincidences here to say it's a coincidence, okay? So it's insinuated in the book that Manson, who was seen as an easy mark by the government, they could use him as a pawn to drive a wedge between American people and the hippie movement by getting a creepy little guy like Mans with long hair and a beard to go in there and just try to, uh, you know, I think they kind of seduced him and his. he had this, like, harem of women. Manson walked around with, like, these women. And these women just were drawn to him. He was this little, Manson was a little tiny guy. He was, like, five foot six, but he had all this charisma and logic and... Women, for some reason, gravitated to him, whether it was because he had a lot of supplies of drugs they didn't know, or was it just because they were drawn to him, you know? So he'd show up at this clinic with this harem of women and people that hung around with him, this little commune of hippies. And it's insinuated in the book that they kind of brought him in there, not for his parole meetings with his parole officer, Roger Smith, but to give him his supply of LSD or to put him through experiments. They... they probably, I'm guessing they offered him money, say, hey, if you and your girls will come into the clinic and try out some of this acid, we'll give you 50 bucks or something like that. I don't know. I don't know how else they would seduce a guy like this to come in, but allegedly the book insinuates they bring Manson into this clinic where this Jolly West is giving, a, you know, providing experiments on people by giving them LSD. 
and they somehow condition him and, and modify his behavior so he becomes convinced that there's going to be a war between the white people and the black people. He's convinced that there's going to be Armageddon. He has all these visions on acid, basically, and they convince him to, to drive a wedge between the American people and the hippie movement that he's got to go out and kill these people. Now, now the author, Mr. O'Neill, doesn't come out and say this verbatim, but it's kind of insinuated that Manson was used by the CIA and the FBI to do this, and they, they conditioned him and modified his behavior through the use of psychotropic drugs like LSD to give him visions, to give him second sight, to recondition his brain into thinking a certain way. And they knew that, you know, this guy was basically a loner. He had no family. He had no friends. He was he was completely isolated in a way. And you know, who would believe him if he went and said, hey, the government's messing with me, man. They're screwing with me. None of this is real. This isn't who I am. He, he tried to say it in later years, but nobody would believe him because they thought he was crazy. And this is what the book starts to talk about. You know, that Manson was really, he was like this like this wild child, which is true. He had been abused and beaten and, and severely just raped and, and abused as a kid. And he grows up into this guy who, who he still, there's an innocent part of him that just wants to be a musician. He just wants to be a, an artist, you know. And he, and he runs into Terry Melcher and Dennis Wilson. Dennis Wilson is a co-finder of the Beach Boys and the drummer of the Beach Boys. And, and, and he somehow Dennis Wilson, who I don't think ever admitted to his affiliation with Manson, but somehow Dennis Wilson uh, listened to some of Manson music and got him a meeting with Terry Melcher. And Terry Melcher was this record producer, singer, and songwriter who was instrumental in shaping the mid to late shaping the mid to late 1960s California sound. I mean, he's best known for contributions by producing the band The Birds' uh, first two albums, Mr. Tambourine Man in 1969 and Turn, Turn, Turn in 1965. He's also responsible for most of the hit recordings of Paul Revere and the Raiders and Gentle Soul. And he is the only child of film star and musician Doris Day, who some of you who are younger probably don't know who she is, but she was a very popular and very beautiful woman in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, I believe. And Dennis Wilson, who kind of had befriended Charles Manson, said to Terry, hey, you got to listen to this man's music, man. And somehow Charlie got his music in front of, he got his music in front of Terry Melcher, and they, they talked about giving him a record deal. But I believe Doris Day heard it, and said, there's no, there's no basic fucking way you're ever going to get a recording deal. You suck, basically, is what Manson was told. And this all ties back into the murders because Terry Melcher lived in this house in a certain area of the Hollywood Hills, and he moved out, and then allegedly Manson went back to this house and killed a bunch of people that already lived there. But it, you know, it gets kind of convoluted. I'm not going to go into the details of the murder. But the whole idea is that here's this guy, Charles Manson, who has had a horrible life up to this point in his life. He's kind of this wanderer, a loner. He's, he's been beaten and abused and sodomized and, and treated horribly. He's, he's mentally and emotionally in a wreck in many ways, but he's also very focused and brilliant. He's, he's got a brilliant mind. And the government somehow sees him in the system and, and it's insinuating the book that they kind of pick him out as this person who can divide the wedge between the hippies and the American people and create this upheaval to discolor or taint the view of the hippies is not just fun-loving people, but kind of monsters and terrible, horrible, uh, murderous people. For most of my life and for most of our lives, we have known of Charles Manson, those of you who know about him and know of the things he allegedly did and was a, a supposedly involved in. There's one perception and one way it's been portrayed to each of us through the media. The media has portrayed Charles Manson as this squirrely, freaky guy that's worse than the devil himself. He's been portrayed as Satan in the media. A crazy-eyed guy with a swastika carved into his forehead who allegedly tripped out in the 1960s, got these men and women uh, under his spell, turned them into a, a, this little cult and got them to go murder for him like he was like a little Hitler. He was like a hippie Hitler. 
And that's the way it's been portrayed since 1969. So for 50 years, people have been like, man, he must have been crazy. He's horrible. He's an awful person. The perception that was fed to us was not the truth. Even though the book couldn't come out and say it verbatim or definitively, it leads you to believe that Charles Manson was used in some nefarious way by the government to either be part of these murders or he was held as a scapegoat for the murders, much like kind of Lee Harvey Oswald may have been a patsy. Manson, you know, was misportrayed or he was he was not portrayed correctly because there were other things going on behind the scenes that tied him into those events of the of the, of that summer. And I'm not trying to downplay what he did or what he allegedly did. I'm not trying to undermine it or or, or, or um, lessen it at all. But there is evidence to prove that his trial was more or less illegal. There should have been a mistrial um, called for a mistrial because there were evidence that was never brought into play. There were times that he was, before he even committed the murders, that he had broken his probation even by going to this clinic in the Haight Ashbury area, it was a violation of his was a violation of his parole. And even though his parole officer got him to go there, that in and of itself would have put him into prison at the time for violation of his parole, and he wouldn't have been able to commit the murders. Which it's insinuating that because he kept violating his parole, but nobody would would put him back in prison. Nobody would would um, arrest him for parole violations if he had been arrested for parole violations during the summer or prior to the summer of 69, he wouldn't have been able to commit the murders, which insinuates that he, in fact, was being used and kept out of prison so he could be, in fact, used as a scapegoat or a patsy or a, or a figure to drive this wedge in and commit these murders and be used as this figurehead, the monster of the hippie world to scare people. And it did. It worked. Think about it. I mean, you, you say Charles Manson to anybody and immediately your butthole puckers. You kind of cringe like, oh my God, the horrible things you did, you know. But but the point of all this is our reality is fed to us. We're conditioned to believe and think and see and read and hear things a certain way. And that's what they've done with history. That's what they've done with this man, Charles Manson. They, they told you he was this person. He was A plus B equals C. And there's no other way to look at it other than that. But if you didn't know that there's all these other things going on behind the scenes with the CIA and the FBI and the, and the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and the Prosecution's Department of Los Angeles County and all this stuff, you'd have no idea why he he did this. I mean, he just woke up one day and said, let's go kill Sharon Tate and go crazy. And I, it didn't work that way. Um, but there, there were there were many things in our lives where the, the perceived reality is a lie. It's an illusion. Because they feed you your perception, perceptive or your perceived reality. They tell you what reality is. And they feed you this reality through news, through the news media, the state-controlled news media. They feed you your reality through radio, television, now the internet, and your cell phones, through billboards and books and Hollywood movies. It's all the land of Oz. And what they did in the land of Oz is they created Charles Manson. He was like one of these crazy flying monkeys in the movie that everyone's afraid of, right? And he's got a knife, you know, he's going to come and get you in the dark. And the hippies are bad and the hippies are mean. And they're going to come and get you. They cut out Sharon Tate's baby. Oh my God, you know. I mean, it's insinuated in the book that people from the CIA may have been a part of, the, of Manson's family. And they orchestrated this and they talked him into doing it. You know, the CIA had people everywhere. They had CIA people inside the Haight-Ashbury area watching everybody. Conducting surveillance on the hippies the anti-war people and all that stuff. I think the point of my podcast isn't isn't to put down Charles Manson or to promote Charles Manson. It's to say, hey, look, the perceived reality of what happened during that summer, who Charles Manson was as a man, is far different than what 
the truth of the matter is. Because they want you to think and believe a certain way. You know, and think about it. Like after 1969 or 1970, there were no more hippies. It kind of went away. And everybody kind of graduated from college and they went and got jobs in the corporate world. It kind of killed the whole hippie thing. But the, but the point is, much of what we think is real in our country and much of what we're sold and we're conditioned to believe is a lie, including what Charles Manson was and how he was used and what happened on those horrible nights in the summer of 1969. And it makes you question your reality because for all these years since the age of 10, I thought of Charles Manson as this horrible, terrible person with crazy eyes, you know, and he was going to show up at my door, man, he's going to break out of prison and stab me to death. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we don't really know who Charles Manson was. They've never really told us who he was and they've hidden it all from us. I mean, most people don't know he was a musician or that he played guitar or he could sing or he had dreams of being uh, a musician or a rock star or a folk rock artist. Most people don't know that about him. They just know that he was crazy and, he, and they think he personally killed like nine people. I mean, the truth of the matter is I don't think he, he, he was even there when the murders went down or he was down the road waiting for the people to come back who allegedly did it. He never killed a person, but he, he spent his rest of his life in prison allegedly for orchestrating all these murders. You know, some of some of the women that were part of his family got out of prison earlier, but he never did. He died. He died basically in prison. But nobody knows the truth of who this guy really was or who he stood for or what his brain was like or what he had been through as a kid. Nobody cares. They just, they just buried it because he was used as this figure, figurehead, to undermine the perceived reality of the hippie movement. And just think of all the things in our life that we think we know about. We think we know the real story of 9-11. We think we know the real story of COVID-19 because most of us just believe what we're told through Lester Holt and ABC or any of the talking heads on ABC, CBS, NBC, any of them. We, our whole life is told to us and we're educated through these, these ridiculous sources that are owned by major corporations that are their primary goal in the news media is to make money and to sell you stories so you'll keep watching and, and sponsors will keep paying for advertising. So we don't know the real reality. What really went down on 9-11? Most people believe it was hijackers, flew planes into buildings, and that was it. And we went to war and the world has been turned upside down ever since that day. Not plain and simple. Because people don't want to know the truth. People don't want to know, my God, my government could really be that bad. Yes, yes, they could be that bad, and they are that bad. But no, it's too hard for people to comprehend. You know, it's too hard. People would feel too much pain, too much distance, too much just uh, dread in their hearts. And it would it would cause some people to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge if they knew the truth of how they've been tricked and lied to most of their lives about every single thing, from Santa Claus all the way up to the government and Charles Manson and everything else in between. I mean, if this book, this book does not come out and say Charles Manson was used and tricked and he wasn't responsible for these murders, but it insinuates that there was a nefarious force behind him getting him to do it, meaning the CIA and the FBI, to drive a wedge between the American people and the hippie movement and to undermine the peace and love movement, movement so they could get rid of the war protesters and continue in Vietnam and continue with the mind control experiments in the country. But if you don't know any of that and you don't know any better and you're blue pilled and you're sitting there in your rabbit hole, you're like, and you're just chewing on your lettuce and your, and your carrots, you're like, well, what difference does it make to me? I got my lettuce and my carrots, you know, then you don't know. And that's what they want. They don't want you to know. But if, if it was such a huge moment when I read this book and I went, wow, you mean, I mean, I mean, Charles Manson was, this isn't at all what I thought it was. This my perceived reality of that whole Manson Tate LaBianca murders in 1969 is nothing even close to what I thought it was. I mean, this this poor guy who had been abused and, and just just destroyed his whole life mentally and emotionally is even taken advantage of. Not he's not even only taken advantage of and abandoned by his family and his classmates in school, and he's he's just hor horribly treated. The government uses him as a pawn and a patsy in in a big scheme with psyops and, and psychotropic drugs 
and use him as this poster child of evil to undermine a peace and love movement. <laughs> and I went, wow, the government would do that? Yes, the government would do it. And I believe in my heart, I believe they did. And they're still doing stuff like that. Right now, as I speak, 75 fucking million Americans are self-contained in their homes. There's no military outside my window. There's no military in the streets of Cleveland or New York or California. But people have gone, okay, I'll just sit in my house. You told me to sit in my house. I'm going to sit in my house. I guess so. I guess there's this this virus that's going to kill us all. And I I better stay inside. As I've said in other podcasts, most people in this world are too stupid and too weak and too passive to fight and stand up for themselves. Most people will not fight anymore. And I have a feeling it has something to do with something the government is pumping in the airways through these devices that we stare at. The iPhones and the iPads and the cell phones and the smartphones and the computer screens. Because nobody has any fight. Nobody cares. The only thing people are attacking is each other. We're attacking each other in the street. We're fighting over Popeye's chicken in restaurants. People the other day got in a fight over bottles of wine and they were throwing bottles of wine around a grocery store somewhere here in the country. People are fighting over toilet paper rolls for no reason. What's Why toilet paper rolls? People in this country don't have any fight left in them and they know that. They know that. And they're going to do whatever they're told to do. And they'll go on TV and they'll say, Today, my fellow Americans, a two-year-old boy died, fell victim to the COVID-19 disease. <gasps> Oh, and everybody's like, oh, a two-year-old boy. <gasps> and we don't know if a two-year-old boy really died. But everyone, it tugs at their heart. They love the tug at your heartstrings. And they tell you that Tom Hanks is sick. <gasps> Tom Hanks, the poster child of the all-American actor. He is such a good man, and he has such good, noble roles in the movies. But the trick of this whole thing is, is none of us know who Tom Hanks is as a person. None of us know what he's really like at home. The, the roles he plays in movies, that's a role he's playing. It's a lie. You know, that's not Tom Hanks. That's a man playing another role. That's a man playing a man stranded on an island with a soccer ball that he's named Wilson. But Tom Hanks has never been stranded on an island with a soccer ball. You know, it's all fake. But so many of us out there believe that that's really Tom Hanks. <gasps> Tom Hanks is on an island. You know, I, I don't know how to put it, but most of us aren't too sharp out there. Mars, most of us will believe what we're told and we won't question it. Right now, the whole world is under lock and key. And no bullets have been fired. Right? There's nobody outside our doors with guns. We've been self-imprisoned with an imaginary monster called the COVID-19 virus. And everyone's horrified. They've got us all horrified. People have bailed on the stock market. They've cashed in their stocks. You're all huddled in your houses and your bunkers with your shotguns, your cigarettes, and your booze, and you're waiting for the zombie masses to come to the door. And what I think is, is fascinating about this is, let's say, for instance, there was some type of United Nations army that, that knocked down the door of every country and came into every town with tanks and stuff. And each of us, and, and the guys I've met at the gun store recently, they've got their AK-47s they got their AK or their SKS or their um, AR-15s or 9mm. You know, those are like pea shooters compared to what the military has. So if the military rolled M1 tanks, Abram tanks down, down my street, I, I what am I going to do? Molotov cocktail's not going to stop that. You know, and so everyone here is just like, there's like, well, we're ready. We're ready for what exactly? They don't even need military. I told you this. They do not need the military to take over the world. They've got you all so hypnotized. They've got you all baffled and bamboozled. You're like a bunch of little children that believe not to get out of bed because there's a boogeyman under, under the bed. Right? Remember when you were a little kid? And they, they wouldn't let you out of the bed. And they said, don't don't come out of the bed. And But mom, I want to come I want to come watch TV with you guys. No, no, no. If you get out of the bed, there's a boogeyman. And he's going to get you. That's what they used to tell me when they weren't tying me to my bed. 
or they weren't locking me. They actually would lock me in my room. They had a, a hook lock on the outside of my door and they would lock me in my room. I'm not going to talk about some of the things I went through as a kid, but they told me there was a boogeyman. If you got out of bed, the boogeyman was going to get you. The boogeyman was going to get you. And I didn't know what a boogeyman was and I didn't want him to get me, whoever it was. And that's just what they're doing. They're creating boogeymen. There's boogeymen everywhere now. There's boogeymen viruses. There's boogeymen terrorists. And there's boogeymen bombs. And there's snipers. And there's people in Vegas that are going to shoot you from hotel windows. And the schools aren't safe. And now the hospitals aren't safe. Schools aren't safe. Mosques aren't safe. Synagogues aren't safe. We've had shootings at churches. Black churches and Jewish synagogues. We've had shootings in hotels in Las Vegas. No, it's not safe anywhere. It's not safe anywhere at all. I don't know, man. Charles Manson was a boogeyman. He was the boogeyman of the late 1960s, and he was used to undermine the confidence and of the peace-loving hippies, or the American perception of the hippies. They're doing everything in their power to control us, and I don't know what the plan is. I don't know what the overall plan is. I still can't figure out why and how they got the world to agree on this virus, or if it was a you know, bio, bio weapon that the Chinese accident released or intentionally released around the world. I have no idea. So here's the bottom line. Go to Amazon.com and order Tom O'Neill's book, Chaos, Charles Manson, The CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. Once you read this book, I guarantee you, you will have a brand new perspective on Charles Manson, the murders that he was connected with during the summer of 1969, and you'll have a brand new perspective on our government and the secret programs they use to alternate, alternate to, and the secret programs that they had at the time and probably still have to manipulate your behavior, to change your mind about things, to manipulate the way you look at things. This will give you a new perspective on how our government works and how they manipulate public perception of events and happenings in our country and around the world. I guarantee it. So get this book. It's a fascinating book. It'll change your view on your own reality and the reality you were growing up and what your perceptions, what you thought your perceptions of reality were. I'm P.T. Pop, and I'm hoping that each and every one of you who listen to my podcast around the world are safe and you're healthy and your friends and family are healthy, and I hope this program that I have come up with is helping you come up with a new reality, a more realistic view of the world and your world, and helps you become the person you are meant to be. Have a good rest, good next week. This is uh, the next week coming up. Hope, hopefully better things are around the corner for each of us. Have a good night. Take care. Bye. You have been listening to PT Pop, a mind revolution. Leading you out of the rabbit hole, one grain of truth at a time. I'm out on the road, up on the roof, looking for something, but there's no truth.